Okay, and the story begins. We're on chapter 14, page 168. So we have these three uh, levels of people. There's the tzaddik, the person who has totally internalized the divine soul, um, whose animal impulse or negative influence is either non-existent or at least not relevant. It's not conscious of it. There is, and we're, we're going to try our best to, to not use the English translations because they don't do justice and, and they imply different connotations. There's the Russia. Russia is the person who, who his animal soul is very influential. And then there's the Bainani. The Bainani's divine soul is influential. The Bainani's animal soul is influential. But in terms of behavior, he does not act upon what his animal soul compels him to do. Um, just the, 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 the animal, the Bainani has a lot in common with the Tzaddik. He has a lot in common with the Rasha. What he shares in common with the Tzaddik is behavioral perfection. But the tzaddik is on a higher level because the tzaddik also has emotional perfection. The tzaddik doesn't have the animal soul. The Bainini shares a lot in common with the rasha as well. He wants to sin. He lusts sin. He, lusts, he, he has impulses. He has regular human drives and desires. The difference between him and the Bainini is... He doesn't follow those desires. He employs self-control. So the difference between a Benini and a Russia is very slight. It's just the difference between behavior. Is he going to actually, does he employ that self-control or not? Now, in our chapter, it says something interesting. There's something interesting in this chapter. The Tanya if you notice throughout what we've been reading, is not so much instructional, it's more informative. The author's not telling us what to do, he's just giving us information and telling us how to, just giving us a new pair of eyes in which to view life, in which to view ourselves. This is the first point in Tanya that there's an actual instruction. And it's very easy for it to go unnoticed because it's very subtle. Let's take a look on page 168, the first bold paragraph. It's in the middle of the page. It's like a two or three liner. Now, the level of Bainani is a standard attainable by every person, right? Not everybody can become a tzaddik. Not everybody can totally internalize the divine soul and lose their drive for, for negativity and be driven only towards positivity. But a Bainani which means I'm going to control myself. That's everything. Everybody can attain that. And here's where the instruction comes in. And practically speaking, every person ought to aim towards it. I always wondered to myself, is the Tanya talk, the, the, the formal name of the Tanya, as we said earlier, is not Tanya. That's not the actual name of the book. That's kind of its nickname. The formal name of the book is the book of the Bainani. So who is Tanya written for? Is it written for the Bainini? Or is it written for the person who's not yet a Bainini but wants to become one? Yeah. 
I would think both. Okay. Who says it's both? We'll do a vote. Make a poll. Raise your hand. You say it's both. Okay. Who says it's just for the Bainini? I do. Okay. Who says it's for the aspiring Bainini? I do. But not yet Bainini. Okay. I want to change my vote to that. <laughs> I, I, there's one thing for sure. The Tanya is definitely not meant for a tzaddik. <laughs> it's meant for the person who has struggles, whether it's a bainini, whether it's somebody who has that external perfection, behavioral perfection, but still lusts and still has regular human desires, or it's the person who has those desires and even acts upon them sometimes. Um, but it's the inspire, aspiring bainini. And the Alter Rebbe tells us Every person ought to aim toward becoming a Benini. Whether we make it there or not, we have to at least try. Because we can. And whether we want to or not, let's at least aspire toward that level. Now, why is this um, something attainable by everybody? Because everybody can master self-control. And how do we know when we get there? Good question. Good question. I just dropped my pen. And if I don't hold my pen, I, whatever, you know, everybody has their stick. Um, <laughs> how do we know when we get there? Good question. I don't think we, it's, I don't know if it's relevant. What happens when you get there? If, we, if you know, you don't want to be, now I can relax. You know, last so week, like we, the journey, not the destination. Exactly. La, you know, last week we told the story of the great sage Rabbi Akiva. Story in the Talmud where Rabbi Akiva was once um, chastising somebody for sinning or for at least desiring sin. So it says the Satan, the prosecutor. Did I tell the story last week or did I say it in a different class? I don't think you said it. I didn't say it last. Okay, I get. I'm I'm getting old. No. I'm <laughs> oh yes, desperate, horribly old, Josh. So the great sage Rabbi Akiva. I thought it was this class. I, I must have said it in a different class. I'm sorry. The great sage Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a tzaddik. He was a righteous person. And there was somebody who was sinning or desiring sin or whatever it was. Rabbi Akiva was chastising him saying you could be doing better. and So the Satan, Satan, you know what the English word for Satan is? Satan is not necessarily um, the red man with the horns and the pitchfork. You could, yeah. You, you know, ready to throw us in that furnace of fire. The Satan means a prosecutor, a heavenly prosecutor. Said, wait a minute. This guy thinks he's all that. Let's challenge him. The Satan came disguised as a woman dressed provocatively at the top of a palm tree, waiting all the way on top. Rabbi Kiva looks up. He goes, whoa. He starts scaling the palm tree. When he was halfway up that palm tree, the Satan revealed his true identity. Rabbi Kiva realized he almost slipped, and, and the Satan said, if you were not the great sage Rabbi Akiva, and if not for your great Torah knowledge, you would have um, you would have succumbed to this sin. 
Rabbi Kiva realized that it's always important to realize that you've never made it there. Let's be on guard. We always have to be on guard. We should never have that feeling that, oh, I've made it. So, Judy, I think it's a good question. How do we know if we've made it? Um, I, I, I think there's value in not knowing that we've made it. I remember when I was in yeshiva, and our, our rosh yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva, he would give us a class every morning in, in Talmud. And before beginning his Talmud lecture, before even opening the book, he would look around the room. He was a funny guy. He was a you know, long gray beard, long black coat. One of the, you know, that, that image that you see, that you, that you picture. But he was a clown. <laughs> he had a great sense of humor and a very funny person. It was, it was it's funny. It's like you got to look past the clothing sometimes. He would say to us every single morning, what do you want to do when you grow up? People would have their answers. Some wanted to be a rabbi, accountant, doctor, whatever it was. Everyone had their, their dreams, their aspirations. And he would ask us this frequently. It was our last lecture of the year. So I said to him, Rabbi, and he asks us, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, Rabbi, what answer are you looking for? <laughs> what do you want to hear? You keep asking the question. What's your answer? He says, a Jew should never look at himself or herself as he or she has grown up. We've never grown up. We're always growing. That was his answer. We're always growing. Several years later, when it became time for our smicha test, for him to test us and ordain us as rabbis, he's testing us, going around the room, and at the end of the at the end of the test, he says, "Now you guys are going to be ordained as rabbis, and you're finishing your studies and your yesh- in yeshiva. It's important that you know this is not the culmination of your studies. This is the beginning. <laughs> there's always more to grow. There's always there's always more. So I don't know how we, and, and that's why the Alter Rebbe says it's something we have to constantly aspire toward, even if we did get there." We still have to aspire. We still have to continue growing. The reason why everybody can achieve this, or at least aspire toward this, is because what's demanded of a Bainini is not emotional perfection. The al is not telling us, I don't want you to want to sin. What he's saying is, I know you want to sin. I want you to employ self-control, which everybody can do. We can all employ self-control. And we spoke about the idea of self-control um, two classes ago in chapter 12. Right? Just by being intentional. The mind rules the heart. Yes, I feel an impulse to do something. But if I'm being rational, as long as I'm being rational and intentional, I can muster the strength to make the right choice. As long as I'm being intentional. A tzaddik, on the other hand, doesn't even want to sin. Not only does he not sin, he doesn't even want to sin. That's, that's a high level. That's not something that's expected of us. That's a high expectation, perhaps an unrealistic, expecta- unreasonable expectation. Um, and on the contrary, we'll, we'll discuss later in chapter 27, if we have that expectation of ourselves, we're going to be in for disappointment and it, it could lead to, to negative feelings. A negative, it could really bring, drag us down. It's, it's important to have realistic expectations.
Self-control is a realistic expectation. There is the famous Katsker Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Katsk. I think it's what he, he was a very, he had these liners that were very sharp. Um, and I think it's very relevant to what we're saying here. He used to say, I don't blame people for wanting to sin. I blame people for having the time to sin. Hmm. To control our wants is very difficult and not a reasonable expectation, but to control our behavior and how we use our time and what we use our time for, that's a very reasonable expectation. And that's something we can all either accomplish and at the very least we can aspire toward, we can work toward. How do we do this? So like we said, by being intentional, and he, allude, he, he retouches upon this idea on page 169. Um, the bottom, the, the second to last paragraph on the page of 169, the bold paragraph, sorry, the second to last bold paragraph on 169, for even when your heart lusts and desires a certain physical pleasure, especially that pleasure is inappropriate, right? regardless of whether it's permitted or, God forbid, prohibited by Jewish law, even if it's permitted, if, it, if it's motivated by lust, it ends up being um, self-centered rather than divine-centered. It ends up being the animal soul rather than the divine soul. You can strengthen yourself not to succumb and completely divert your attention from him. How? So as we mentioned earlier, by being intentional, the mind rules the heart. By saying to yourself... I don't want to be a Russia even for a moment, which means the definition of a Russia, somebody who is controlled by their heart, somebody who doesn't have self-control. I don't want to lose self-control for even a moment. I want to be in control of myself. I don't want to lose self-control. Just by telling that to ourselves, reminding ourselves, being intentional, we can muster up the strength. Now, I, I mentioned this all the time. Never rely 100% on translations. Translations are, um, you know, one Hebrew word can have multiple translations, and you're never going to get the full picture with a translation. Um, it doesn't say, say to yourself. In the Hebrew, it says, to, to say to your heart. Talk to your heart. Because the mind rules the heart. When we talk to our hearts, we become intentional. There's a model of therapy called narrative therapy. It was um, developed by Dr. White. I don't remember his first name. I, I think he started off in Australia in the 70s. Probably one of the only non-Jewish therapists um, to make it into the textbooks. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and he developed a mode of therapy called narrative therapy. Narrative therapy is basically a model in which one re, uh, cognitively restructures themselves. A person may feel depression or anxiety because of a certain situation, because of where their life is at, at present. And the premise of narrative therapy is rewriting your own story. We can choose how we view ourselves. And a fundamental principle in narrative therapy is externalizing problems rather than internalizing problems. So rather than saying, 
I'm depressed. I'm anxious. No, no, no. I'm feeling, I have, de I'm, I'm feeling depression. It's not who I am. It's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling anxious. I'm not anxious. I'm feeling anxious. I'm Josh. And that externalizes the challenge, the problem, and gives us a little bit more. It, it's more, um, you know, definitely good for our morale in this battle. When there's a challenge coming, that's not who I am. That's what I'm experiencing at the moment. And yes, the experience is real. I'm, nobody's um, denying the fact that that experience is real and how impactful that experience is. But it's not me. And what that does is it gives me the strength to be able to battle it, to be able to control it. Um, many therapists actually recommend naming the challenge. Because what happens when you name something? It gives it a it gives it an identity of its own. Exactly, it gets its own independent identity, and now it's not me anymore, right? Nobody talks to themselves by name, usually, um, because well, anyway. What? Some people do always talk in the first person. It, yeah, but they're externalizing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of a name, a name is external. Do you know there's times in prayer? You know, usually we pray to God, our King, our Master, our Lord, our God. But then there's times where we use, we don't talk to God by name. We say you, Baruch Ata. What does Baruch Ata mean? Bless, blessed are you. You. We're talking to God in the, uh, in the first part. We're calling him you. We're not calling him by name. How is that respectful? The idea is that it's intimate. That's a very intimate part of prayer. Where we become intimate with God, the name, the, you know, the externalization where God is this big king, we're past that. We're developing a relationship with him. We say you. Now, what we're trying to do when it comes to our challenges is the exact opposite. We're not trying to internalize. You know, with God, we want to internalize him. When it comes to our challenges, we want to externalize them. And that's why it says... Say to yourself, now to yourself, again, I said it's not an accurate translation. It's to your heart. That's the Hebrew translation, lelibo. Say to your heart, I don't want to be a rush. I don't, this is not who I want to be. When we have an impulse, when we feel an impulse to do something we shouldn't be doing, let's talk to that impulse. Because when we do, we externalize it. That helps us become intentional. That gives us the strength to overcome it. Questions, comments, thoughts, controversy? Anyone? Mm -hmm. Makes common sense. Okay. Sounds good. And the the it goes through the entire conversation that we ought to have with ourselves. Um, the idea of sins. Um, from a non-Tanya perspective. Somebody who has well, perhaps well-versed in classical Jewish texts and literature, but hasn't learned Tanya yet, see, may see Judaism um, from the reward and punishment um, lens. And reward and punishment is a 
it is a um, fundamental principle in our faith. It's one of the 13 principles of faith that Maimonides lists. But in Hasidic culture, it's not the focus. The focus is more of the relationship. But somebody who hasn't had that um, perspective yet, what's wrong with sin? I lose brownie points. What's the, why is a mitzvah important? I gain brownie points. Um, just to put it real simply, there is a reality to that. But it's not the focus. The focus is the relationship. The word mitzvah not only means commandment, but means connection, a bond. And an avera, a sin, gets in the way of that bond, gets in the way of that uh, connection. This is expressed in, in, on the top of 170, in the verse of Isaiah, Isaiah 59, 2, top of 170, the first bold paragraph, as the verse states, your sins were a separation between you and God. What happens is the more we sin, the more we become desensitized. Now, we can never lose a connection with God. We have that soul, we have that connection, and, and God believes in us and, and all that beautiful stuff, and it's true. But consciously, we can become desensitized. We can become intellectually and emotionally desensitized through sin. And when we, so, and, and so it's important that we remind ourselves when we feel an impulse. Hey, I don't want to lose, I don't want to desensitize myself. And the more we remind ourselves, the more we externalize that drive to sin, the more we see it as an external force trying to distract us rather than identifying with it and feeling that that's who I am. This is the job of a Bainini. A tzaddik doesn't have the pleasure of uh, engaging in that battle in the same way. <laughs> okay. If you remember all the way back in chapter one, let's take a look at chapter one real quick. Beginning of chapter one, um, the bottom of page, where is this? Okay, the bottom of page 27. I'm just going to read the first couple of lines, all the way on the bottom of page 27, the bold paragraph. The rabbis taught at the end of chapter 3 of Tractate Nida of the Talmud. So the Talmud teaches us that before a child is born, his or her soul is made to swear an oath. Be, righteous, be a righteous person. And again, we're not using those translations. Be a tzaddik. Do not be a rasha. Okay. Let's come back to our chapter. Be a tzaddik. Don't be a rasha. Now one might ask, isn't that redundant? If I'm going to be a tzaddik, I'm obviously not going to be a rasha. Can't be both. Well, Why the re it's telling you you should aim to be a tzaddik, but if you can't be a tzaddik, well, then secondly, then don't be a Russia. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. These are two steps. Be a tzaddik. If you can't do that, because that's a very lofty goal, if you can't be perfect emotionally, if you can't lose the drive to sin, okay, fine, I get that. We're all human. At least don't be a rush. At least don't lose self-control. 
Rasha means I've lost self-control. Doesn't mean I'm wicked or evil necessarily. I could be a very good person. I could be a very spiritual person. I could be a kind person. But it means I lost self-control. Um, that's why I don't like the translations, the English translations, because it, it, it kind of has the, it doesn't have the right connotation in our context. And the Talmud is telling us, if you're not going to be a tzaddik, if you're not going to be totally internalized the divine soul, because that's not easy, that's not necessarily practical, at least don't be a rasha. At least don't lose self-control. Even if you're, in other words, in, in plain, simple English, the Talmud is telling us, even if you're going to lust sin, you don't have to do it. Just because we feel like doing something doesn't mean we have to. And we can muster that self-control, again, just by being intentional. Because the divine soul by nature is more intentional. Okay. Don't, don't you go in between? There's like, I could be really good and not lost anything until there's a chocolate cake in the refrigerator. Yes. So I may go from somebody who's pretty good to somebody who's really bad over a cake. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you're bad, but um, you're right. There, there's different levels of everybody has their lusts, their desires in their own areas. Um, and for some, it's constant. For some, it's only when the chocolate cake is there. I know for me, the diet, my, my, uh, my desire for Diet Coke is not just when I see the Diet Coke. I want that Diet Coke early in the morning. <laughs> well, thanks for creating uh, the lust that wasn't there a second ago. <laughs> you know, there's a reason why one of the advantages of Zoom is you don't see on either side of me my big pile of Diet Coke cans. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> move, the move the camera. I'm not moving the camp. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, you can see you can see our coffee cups. I'm, okay, I'm, t I'm I'm I am kidding. There is no diet coke. I'm just. Yeah. Barbara doesn't believe me. She thinks it's hiding behind the camera. <laughs> no, but there's cases in the garage. Exactly. That's where it's hiding. It's a, it's, it's in the fridge. If it's not cold, it's not worth it. <laughs> everybody knows that, right? Uh, no, it's, it's, but but the point is, everybody has their uh, area. And everybody, and for everybody, it's going to be prevalent in different ways and to different degrees. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. We're speaking very generally, and it's going to apply to everybody differently. Now, even though not everybody can be a tzaddik, so how are we supposed to fulfill this oath? We essentially lied to ourselves. That doesn't feel good. We made an oath, be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. So we could fulfill the second half of the oath. I'll, at least to some degree, muster up the strength to employ self-control. But how do I kill that desire for negativity, for, for, for self-centered self, for self uh, desires? How how? I can't be a rasha. I how, how do I? I can't be a tzaddik. I made an oath, though. I've essentially lied to myself. How do I fulfill that oath to some degree? By being a Bainani. By doing the best you can do and be a Bainani. 
Okay, good, good. By, by doing the best we can, in other words, one interpretation of Vyatsadik, if you noticed, let's take a look at this translation again. I don't know how well the, what, how they, I don't remember how they translated, but okay. Look back at the translation, please. Um, if you go to chapter, I'm, drive, I'm driving you guys crazy today, back and forth, but if you go back to page 28 on the top of the page, On the top of pen 28, um, the soul is made to swear an oath, be righteous, be a tzaddik, do not be a rasha. It doesn't say become a tzaddik. I never swore that I'm going to become a tzaddik. I swore that I'm going to be a tzaddik. And there's a slight, there's a difference, a subtle difference, but there's a big, there's a difference between the two. What's the difference between be and become? Be a tzaddik means do what I can toward working toward becoming a tzaddik. Becoming a tzaddik, if I was told to become a tzaddik, I've essentially lied to myself. I'm never going to become a tzaddik. But if I tell myself, be a tzaddik, that's, fo that's focused more on the journey rather than the goal. The journey toward become, being a tzaddik. You see the difference? So I'm still fulfilling my part. I still can fulfill my part of the oath. Even though I can't become a tzaddik, I can focus on the journey, be a tzaddik. Being a tzaddik practically for us, because we're never going to be a real tzaddik, we can develop tzaddik qualities. A tzaddik quality, essentially, is what he says in the chapter, is serving God with joy. Because that's really the bottom line. That's really what it boils down to. Internalizing the divine soul completely and externalizing the animal soul and to a tzaddik who has done this completely basically means I serve God with joy. So my behavioral observances are actually in line with my emotional identity. So I don't just force myself to refrain from sin. I'm at this inspiring moment in my life. I don't want to sin. It's not going to be like that all the time, but that's fine. We could focus on this moment. Let's take one moment at a time. At this moment, I'm inspired to want to eat kosher. I'm inspired to want to pray. I'm inspired to want to put on tefillin, to give charity, whatever it is. You name it. There's 613 opportunities. I'm inspired to do that. So I want to do that. At that moment, I have tzaddik-like qualities. Because my behavior is aligned with my emotions. Or my emotions are in line with my behavior, better yet. <laughs> um, we referred to observances of mitzvahs in chapter 4 as garments, the garments of the soul. Thought, speech, and action are like garments. Because sometimes the garments feel like they don't fit. And let's get new garments, right? If I'm having a hard time in my relationship with God, fulfilling the observances, sometimes it's, let's get new garments. Let's, let me do easier stuff. Maybe I don't, you know, praying is too hard for me. I won't pray. I'll do things that I like. I'll get a new, get new clothing. And what we're saying here is, no, let's go to the gym. If we're not fitting in the clothing, which clothing means behavior, my behavior, I feel like the behavior is not in line with who I am, then I just need to go to the gym. I don't need to get new clothing. <laughs> 
and, and, and we can develop tzaddik-like qualities by serving God with joy. Um, on the bottom of 177, um, all the way in the bottom, the last paragraph. And also, even if your ability to despise evil and take pleasure in God lacks permanence and authenticity, right? It's a fleeting inspiration. It's not really who I am. Ultimately, the reality is that habit rules all, and habit becomes second nature. Um, fake it till you make it, right? So if you will make it your habit to carry out that meditation, to detest evil, then out of habit alone, you will begin to detest genuinely at least a little. We can still, on a minute scale, be, uh, develop tzaddik qualities just by practicing, just by going through those motions. The famous Hasidic uh, leader, Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, Rabbi Nachman of Breslev was a grandson to the Baal Shem Tov, just to give historical context. Pashem Tov um, founded the Hasidic movement um, about 300 years ago. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was his grandson. Um, the, the essence of Hasidic life, then, diversing, uh, I, I'm going off topic a little bit, but I think this is important. The essence of why Hasidic Judaism was founded by the Pashem Tov was so we could serve God with joy. The whole purpose of Tanya, the whole goal of the Tanya, ultimately, is so our relationship, we could feel our observances as a relationship and serve God with joy. Um, th there was a devoted follower, disciple of the Altarab, the author of the Tanya, who was inspired by this Hasidic way of life, serving God with joy, and learning Hasidicism, and, and he became part of that culture. And he says to the Alter Rebbe that my father is not very much not part of this culture. In fact, he's a little bit antagonistic toward it. Is this something I should try to inspire him to be part of? The Alter Rebbe's response set was, if your father serves God with joy, leave him alone. Because he's got the point. That's the bottom line. The bottom line is let's serve God with joy. Now, the reason why I say that is because the... That's a tzaddik-like quality. A tzaddik always serves God with joy. We'll sometimes serve God with joy. We, we have that moment where a tzaddik, and the fame that Rabbi Nachman of Resef used to say, if a person is not feeling joyous, then at least pretend you're joyous. Because the more our, our behavior triggers emotions. In Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, the ethical um, section of the Talmud, in chapter one, it says that Beishamai, not Beishamai, Shamai, the great sage Shamai used to say, greet everybody with a positive countenance, greet everybody with a smile, which is interesting on several levels. Number one, there was the two sages, Shamai and Hillel, and Hillel was a warm person. Shamai was not known to give free hugs and free smiles. That wasn't his personality. Even he was saying, greet everybody with a smile. It wasn't his nature, yet he said everybody must do it, which is interesting. What if I'm not actually feeling positive, positively toward that person? Why should I lie and smile toward them? The answer is smile, and eventually you'll feel, you'll feel that passion toward them. You'll feel better towards them just by smiling. Do it. Eventually we'll feel it. I'll conclude with a story. 
more of an insight than a story. There was the Lev Lever Rebbe. He was the he's the Hasidic leader of the Lev Lever dynasty of uh, a Hasidic group in Israel, and his sons were visiting New York, and they visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and they had an audience with him, a meeting with him. And part of their conversation, the Rebbe asked them a question. Oh, he wanted to share an insight with them. Somehow, it must have been relevant to what, what they were discussing. If we look in the Torah, the story of Yaakov and Esav, Jacob and Esav, right? Which we said earlier represents, those are the twins with inside Rivka. Those rep, that represents the twins that we have within ourselves, the divine soul and the animal soul fighting. When Yaakov and Esav were born, why is Yaakov's name not Yaakov? You remember why? Yeah, because he grabbed the heel of Esav. He grabbed the heel of Esav, right? Yaakov comes from the word Esav, which means heel. He grabbed the heel of Esav because he wanted to be the firstborn, because he was going to be the leader of the. He was going to carry on the lineage of the Jewish people from Yitzchak. And the question is, why would he grab the heel of Esav? It's not really going to be helpful. This is a newborn who's not even born. This is a preborn. How impactful can that be? He grabs the heel, but it and we see practically it didn't accomplish anything. What was the purpose of that? The answer is, let's not focus on what our efforts are going to accomplish. Let's not focus on the goal. Let's focus on the journey. He did what he could do. I'm going to focus not on becoming a tzaddik, because I'll never get there. But I can focus on trying to proactively be a tzaddik, to serve God with joy, to fight my evil inclination. I can focus on grabbing that heel. I don't know if it's going to be impactful, but that's irrelevant. I'm doing my part. In this discussion, the Rebbe gave an analogy. The mitzvah to, to eradicate chametz before Pesach. Chametz represents this negativity, the ego. It's inflated. And although the mitzvah is to, to eradicate chametz, um, let's say you did the search for chametz, you make a blessing. Al biur chametz. God has commanded me to eradicate the chametz. And I search for the chametz and I don't find any chametz to eradicate. I still did the mitzvah. Because the focus is the journey, not so much the goal. Will I ever be a tzaddik? That's not the point. I'm going to do my part. My goal is to be a bainani, to aspire toward being a bainani, toward aspire toward mastering self-control. And I'm going to do what I can to be a tzaddik on some level in the sense that I want to be inspired on the inside as well. I want to be able to serve God with joy. I want my relationships, not just with God, with people, to be inspired with feeling with joy, not just behaviorally kind, but emotionally there to some degree. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So, Rabbi, are there are there those that are born to be at Sadiq? Good question. Good question. Um, generally, a person, even a Sadiq, is not born to be a Sadiq. There are exceptions, but generally, a person, generally, it's a process that they work toward. So it's a free will thing, not 
not nobody's really predestined to be one or the other. Exactly. Exactly. Um, this is alluded to. Now, you are predestined to what your potential is. You know, mo, we're predestined. Can you become a tzaddik? But whether you're going to be one or not, everybody has free will. Um, we're predestined. You know, nobody's predestined. You're going to be wicked. You're going to. God gives us free choice, and and we can. I had a rabbi in yeshiva. He, at the end of his talks, he used to say, "I have good news and I have bad news, and they're both the same. You can do whatever you want. God has created you with free will, <laughs> and it's the best thing, and it's the worst thing, and it's beautiful." But that's a good question. Yeah.